Welcome to the second part of our meditation course and especially welcome to those of you who have just arrived or arrived yesterday and I hope that you're all going to have a very profitable course where you feel that your life has been enriched. I have in my hand a very good English translation of the long discourses of the Buddha, the Digga Nikaya. Nikaya means collection and Digga means long. And they have just been put together in that collection because of their length. The discourses of the Buddha were later, long after his death, divided up into different collections. And the there are five, five collections. The um, Middle Length Sayings, the Majjhima Nikaya, and they were just chosen because of their length. They're medium long. And then the Digger, long collection, and then this the Angutra, they are the numerical sayings. It's a collection of discourses which is put together by numbers. One of this, two of that, three of this, four of that, and divided up into 11 books. And book one has one of this, and book 11 has 11 of this and 11 of that. Then we have the Samyutta Nikaya and a thematic collection. They were put together because they are concerned with the same themes. They are put together in a way that the same topic is being addressed. And then we have the Kudaka Nikaya, which contains everything that didn't fit into the other four. The reason for doing that is nothing but an assistance to remember. And... Uh, it seems to me, and that's a personal opinion, that people in the old days were much more able to remember than we are. They had these memory bridges, and they remembered quite well. Maybe they didn't have such an enormous influx of information as we have today, coming at us from all sides. And so they were able to remember that, what really counts. The, uh, in this tradition, we use the Pali Canon. Pali being the name of the language. The Buddha spoke something which was very near to that which we have in our transmission. Pali is a derivative of Sanskrit. It has been compared to Italian with Latin, Sanskrit being Latin and Italian being Pali. So Sanskrit was spoken by the pundits, the learned, the scholars, and Pali, something akin to that, was spoken by the ordinary folk. And we can actually see that 
when we have a mechanical change, like making two teeth out of PT and making a two Bs out of RV, we have the identical words in Sanskrit and in Pali. The Pali Canon is what has been transmitted to us. I think it is of some importance to know where this teaching comes from. It's not random and it doesn't come out of one's own imagination or out of one's own uh, viewpoints, but it is based in a tradition which is two and a half thousand years old. The Pali Canon is also called the Tipitika. T means three and Pitika means basket, the three baskets. And the three baskets are the Vinaya, the Suttas, and the Abhidhamma. The reason that's called the three baskets is that in those days, when it was first written down, which some scholars put at the first century BC and some at the second century BC, so you can take your choice, doesn't really matter, does it? When it was first written down, it was written down on dried ola leaves. Dried ola leaves are dried banana palm leaves. And when they are dried, they become uh, quite the, a little more solid. They're, they're brittle, but they're fairly solid. And then one used a stylo, something that looks like a screwdriver with a very fine point and scratched the letters into the ola leaf. And having finished with one ola leaf, one then took the juice of some berries, a particular kind of berry, and rubbed it over that. And the juice was very akin to ink. Spread it all over the ola leaf, and then rubbed the excess off. And what remained was a dark indentation, the letter, in the ola leaf. The reason I can tell you about it in such detail is because it's still being done in Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka, there is a monastery where they repeatedly copy the old ola leaves into new ones because the old ones fall apart. And so they always have a whole set of the whole Tipitika on hand written on ola leaves. They are about this high and this long, not all equal, of course, and then put together with a heavier wood uh, binding on top, a heavier piece of wood on top, and a heavier piece of wood at the bottom, and so that they stay together, and then laced together. Nowadays, sometimes if there is a donor, the wooden piece on top is decorated with gold or, or silver. But there weren't books like this, so one couldn't very well carry them under one's arm. So they were put in baskets. And three baskets were being carried around. So that's why the Pali Canon is called the Tipitika, the three baskets. The, um, the Diganikaya, this one here, 
is um, partially of great interest because it contains suttas which have as their content the complete way of practice. Now we must also remember that the Buddha taught on two levels which is also important to know the relative truth and the absolute truth. And when one first comes in contact with the teaching and has no idea what absolute truth is and encounters some of that in the Buddhist teaching, the mind boggles immediately. And the question one asks are not pertinent. They are asked on the level of relative truth and cannot be answered on the level of absolute truth. To give you an example, if you've ever heard of a Zen koan and thought, maybe it's nonsense, but could it possibly mean? It can only be regarded from the standpoint of absolute truth. And then it always means the same thing, that there's nothing and nobody there. So when you hear a Zen koan which says, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Well, obviously, who's going to answer that? You can also compare it to the way we speak about the things that we know and the way physicists speak about the same things. When we speak of a chair or a table, we know we mean a piece of furniture that we can use. When they take a chair or a table as a um, example, they only want to show that such things don't exist. They are only particles. And yet, when they go home from their lecture, they sit down in the chair and use the table. And it's the same thing with the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha teaches that there's nothing and nobody there. It's all an illusion. It's an optical illusion and it's a mental illusion. Optically, there's something there and mentally we've made something out of it. So that's the absolute truth. But on the level of teaching and on the level of relative truth, he uses I and me and mine and you and yourself and he talks about all the things that concern us such as our karma, our purification of uh, mind and emotion, of mind and body as we know it. So we need to remember that we are actually confronted with two things. And as we go through this particular discourse, we will find step by step how to get nearer to absolute truth. Because the promise of the Buddha is that once we have realized absolute truth within ourselves, there is no more dukkha ever again. It's not possible 
that anybody could have dukkha then because there's nobody there to have it. So we must remember that we are looking at methods and guidelines in order to go step by step towards this immense and extraordinary realization. This immense and extraordinary realization which the Buddha had as his enlightenment uh, experience is supported by today's science. But I like to put it another way around. The Buddha supports today's science. And on the other hand, we can also see that most of our scientists, at least the ones we meet, are not enlightened. So while they know that there's nothing in the universe, Nothing at all except particles that come together and fall apart and have been writing about it and making equations about it and explaining it for decades. They haven't realized that the one who knows is exactly of the same order. is also particles coming together and falling apart. Because otherwise all these scientists would be long enlightened and would probably teach enlightenment and not physics. So we have a very interesting phenomena and not only that but in the Buddha's teaching we find practical advice how to do it. And that's the greatest boon we can have. Because while we may have heard about these things, may have read about these things, may be interested in them, if we don't know how to do it, they don't do us any good. Here we find out how to do it. The sutta that I have chosen is called the Potapada Sutta. Now, Potapada was a person. And many of these suttas have the name of the person that the Buddha is talking to. And he is speaking in answer to questions. The uh, undertitle is States of Consciousness, to give an idea what this is all about. And I'm going to read to you the beginning of the sutta, which is nothing but an exposition of how the sutta came about. And they always start with Thus Have I Heard, and that's the title also of this book, the Digha Nikaya, Thus Have I Heard, because that's the first words in each sutta, in Pali Evamme Sutam. And the reason they start out with that is because they were recited at the great council of Arahats when they were then still being orally transmitted and as they were being orally transmitted they then eventually became written down and as they were written down they were written down exactly as they had been orally transmitted or as exactly as it was possible to orally transmit for approximately 300 years 
And Evamme Satam, thus have I heard, has as a next step where it took place, who was there, and what the situation was. And that is not only to arouse interest, which it does possibly, but that was not the reason for it. The reason for being elaborate on those scores was that the other monks who were listening could remember the occasion. They could remember the occasion where they had met and who had been there and then be able to say whether they agreed with that oral transmission or whether there should be changes in it. And in the beginning, thus have I heard, was spoken by Ananda, who survived the Buddha by about 30 years. So at the very first Council of Arahants, which took place three months after the Buddha's Parinibbana, his uh, final uh, demise, his death, Ananda was reciting the suttas. And he started out with us, have I heard. And so this was continued and carried on to the second and the third council. One could also mention that there's no alphabet in Pali. It was an oral language. And when it was written down, it was written down in the Sinhalese alphabet. And so in Sri Lanka, one is because of that and of other reasons, as the opinion that they are the guardians of the Pali canon. And uh, sometimes that's a good thought and sometimes not so. Thus have I heard, once the Lord was staying at Savati in Jeta's Grove, in Anathapindika's Park. I'd like to tell you the story about Anathapindika's Park, which some of you have undoubtedly heard me tell already, but some of you haven't. Anathapindika was a rich merchant, a very rich merchant. And when he heard the Buddha speak, he was totally fascinated and convinced. And so he decided he would like to purchase a monastery for him, a place where the Buddha could stay. Because until that time, the Buddha and his disciples had been wanderers, wandering all through India. They didn't have any fixed abode. So Anatta Pindika looked for a suitable place. And he found a most beautiful mango grove. And he found out that it belonged to Prince Jeta. So he went to Prince Jeta and said, I'd like to buy your mango grove. And Prince Jeta said, not for sale, sorry. So after a while, Anathapindika went back, asked again, again, not for sale. And then he came back the third time. And by that time, Prince Jeta probably, doesn't say so, figured, well, if he's that keen on it, he's probably going to pay a good price. So he said, well, if you really want it that badly, I'll give it to you if you cover every inch of ground with a golden coin. And Anata Pinika said, all right, I'll do that. So he had his servants bring barrel load after barrel load of golden coins and put them on the ground to cover the ground. And then in the end, the story says, 
he ran out of golden coins. There was a small area left that hadn't been covered. And he went to Prince Jeta and told him, and Prince Jeta said, you'll give him that as a discount. <laughs> so he had purchased that mango grove for the Buddha, apparently at a great expense. And um, then he spent another one-third of his fortune, and it took one-third of his fortune, another one-third to build kutis, huts, and furnish them. Now, when we speak of furniture in those days, it's not quite what we have as furniture now. might have been just um, a, um, some hooks on the walls, might have been um, candles, it might have been a, um, a sack filled with hay as a bed. Um, it certainly wasn't elaborate, but it yet it cost him still a lot of money. And the huts were built. And then he offered that to the Buddha. And the Buddha spent 25 rains retreat at Anathapindika's monastery. The rains retreat is in the rainy season in India, three months, and it is a time when monks and nuns are told, that's an old uh, tradition, to stay within the monastery to study and meditate. And that came about, not particularly because the Buddha thought they needed a self-retreat, but maybe he did that too. But the reason he actually brought that about, that rule, was because the monks and nuns in the Buddhist time all went on arms round with an arms pole to get their food. It's the only way to get their food. And when the rainy season comes about in India, the small rice plants are planted under water and you can't see them. They're covered with water. And so the farmers came to the Buddha and complained and said the monks and nuns had been trampling their rice plants. And that, of course, would create a famine because there were many monks and nuns. It is said that there were thousands the exact number is not known. So the Buddha decreed that during that rainy season, when the little rice plants are underwater, they stay in the monastery and they study and meditate and the devoted disciples can bring some food to the monastery. And that is still being done today, although nowadays, of course, one wouldn't trample on the rice plants because there are pathways everywhere. But still, it is an, a rule which is very helpful because it gives you, so to say, a retreat time. And if people, if monks and nuns have been busy, it's very good for them to have that retreat time. Now you can see the thing is called Jeta's Grove. It retains the name of the original owner. Prince Jeta was the original owner. And it's also called Anatapindika's Park, which is the original donor. And uh, to put that into the uh, uh, sutta, is sort of also um, a sign of the remembrance of gratitude to Anatapindika and also the explanation what grove it was. And at that time, the wanderer, Potapada, was at the debating hall near the Tinduka tree 
in the single-hauled park of Queen Malika with a large crowd of about 300 wanderers. Now, a wanderer would be a monk from a different tradition. They're often called just wanderers or ascetics. And Queen Malika was the wife of King Persenedi. And both King Persenedi and Queen Malika were devoted followers of the Buddha. So, apparently, she had offered this hall, which had a single hall, in a park um, to some wanderers. And then the Lord, rising early, took his robe and bowl and went to Sabati for arms. But it occurred to him, it's too early to go to Savati for arms. Suppose I were to go to the debating hall to see the wanderer Puttapada, and he did so. So he went to visit Puttapada because it was very early in the morning, and he thought, well, people wouldn't have the, um, the food ready. Savati is a um, uh, very often mentioned place because of Anatta Pindika's um, monastery, and it was within that area where the Buddha taught. The Buddha only taught in the north of India, and it had spread to so many countries. India itself is the least of the Buddhist countries. Where Buddhism took its root, there is the, there's the least of it. There, Puttapada was sitting with this crowd of wanderers, all shouting and making a great commotion, indulging in various kinds of unedifying conversation. And now I mentioned all the topics which one shouldn't talk about, such as about kings, robbers, and ministers. Well, that's politics. Armies and wars. Well, that's talking about war and the dangers therefrom. Food and drink, not a topic either. Clothing, beds, garlands, perfumes, all things with which to um, decorate oneself. The clothing, the garlands, and the perfumes. Beds, more likely um, giving the idea of having a rest. Relatives, Villages, towns, and cities. One can always talk about such things, but it's not edifying. It's not inspiring. It's not uplifting. Countries. Women. Well, these were all men, so they were not supposed to talk about women. As far as women are concerned, it's the other way around then. Heroes. Maybe pop stars. <laughs> Street and well gossip, the kind of, uh, today still, in the what we call the third world countries, the well is a very important meeting place. And uh, because many of the houses don't have any running water, so the women have to go to the well uh, to fetch water, and then they meet all the neighbors. And then they gossip, what else? And then finally they walk off with their water. So it's a very famous meeting place 
where one can hear the latest news. So it's uh, called Street and World Gossip. Talk of the Departed. Desultory chat, idle chatter. Speculations about land and sea. And talk of being a non-being. So these are the, um, the traditional topics that the Buddha said should not be used. They do not bring deep understanding. They do not turn the mind into practice. They only have a distracting influence. And, um, and they were talking about such things. It doesn't say which ones, but anyway. It says indulging in various kinds of unedifying conversation, and then it has been inserted that what the Buddha has said shouldn't be talked about. But Puttapada saw the Lord coming from a distance, and so he called his followers to order, saying, Be quiet, gentlemen. Don't make a noise, gentlemen. That ascetic Gautama is coming, and he likes quiet and speaks in praise of quiet. If he sees that this company is quiet, he will most likely want to come and visit us. At this, the wanderers fell silent. So Puttapada was obviously interested that the Buddha should come and visit. And then the Lord came to Puttapada, who said, Come, welcome, Reverend Lord. At last, the Reverend Lord has gone out of his way to come here. Be seated, Lord, a seat is prepared. The Lord sat down on the prepared seat, and Puttapada took a low stool and sat down to one side. The Lord said, Puttapada, what were you all talking about? What conversation have I interrupted? And uh, so the Buddha wanted them to tell him, and he might be able to help them with it, but Puttapada said, Lord, never mind the conversation we were having just now. It will not be difficult for the Lord to hear about that later. So he doesn't want to really tell about what they've been talking about. But he wants something else from the Buddha. He wants a, an explanation about something far more important. He says, In the past few days, Lord, the discussion among the ascetics and Brahmins of various schools sitting together and meeting in the debating hall has concerned the higher extinction of consciousness and how this takes place. Now, when we read that, the higher extinction of consciousness, we really don't know what's going on. But what he's talking about, Potapada, is what we call Niroda. It's sometimes called the ninth jhana. And it's the cessation of feeling and perception. And that's what he's interested in. Because they know, they knew in the context in India of meditation, that that was the highest state that was possible to reach in meditation. And it's called in Pali, he calls it here, Abhi Sanya Niroda. Now, Abhi means higher. And... Uh, Sanya is perception, and Niroda is that state. So it's a higher, the highest consciousness perception, one should say. And that's what he wants to know about. It's, as far as these wanderers are concerned, the highest thing they know. 
some have said, once perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition. When they arise, one is conscious, and when they cease, then one is unconscious. So what he is saying is that the extinction of consciousness makes one unconscious, which is not true. It's misunderstood. It's not unconsciousness, but it's a ceasing of perception and feeling. So the whole thing that he's asking is actually not the way it really functions. And the Buddha then uh, refers to all that. So the first thing he says, that the perception arises without cause or condition, and uh, if they arise, one is conscious, if not, one is unconscious. That's how they explained it. But somebody else said, no, that's not how it is. Perceptions are a person's self, which comes and goes. When it comes, one is conscious. When it goes, one is unconscious. See, now he's using the word perception because he has actually used the perception, the highest perception of the extinction of consciousness. But the perception is something entirely different. So the Buddha is going to take exception to that in a minute. So he thinks it's a person, some think it's a person's self. Another said, that's not how it is. There are ascetics and Brahmins of great powers, of great influence. They draw down consciousness into a man and withdraw, to, withdraw it. So it's coming from outside. When they draw it down into him, he's conscious. When they withdraw it, he's unconscious. And another said, no, that's not how it is. There are deities of great powers, of great influence. They draw down consciousness into a man and withdraw it. When they draw it down into him, he's conscious. When they withdraw it, he's unconscious. So he gives several um, possibilities which people have talked about what, how consciousness comes about. The first one that he gives is that it has no cause or condition. It just comes and goes, makes one conscious or unconscious. The second one he gives is that it is one's self, and that just comes and goes. And then one is conscious or unconscious. And the third one, that there are ascetics and Brahmins that put the consciousness in and take it out. And the next one, the fourth one, is that there are deities that do that. There's a great deal of superstition in India then and now. And so these kind of uh, ideas come out of that. The Buddha was uh, adamant about all superstitions, and outward happenings that they were not the true um, way of realizing truth. Then Podapada says, It was in this connection that I thought of the Lord. As surely the blessed Lord, the welfarer, he is supremely skilled about these matters. The blessed Lord well understands the higher extinction of consciousness. What then, Lord, is this higher extinction of consciousness? The reason also that I have chosen a sutta and I'm reading to you is that I think it is important not only to hear where the teaching comes from but also to get a feeling for the time that the Buddha was living in and the whole social surrounding that he lived in. One gets a much clearer view of what it was like and not only that But when one gets to know this more and more, one can feel quite identified with it, as if one is there. 
because the same people are often mentioned and they become sort of friends. You can you know their funny ways already and you know the funny questions they ask. So they are uh, friends that one has in the Pali Canon and one can feel that one is has part in it and that's very helpful. And so we see what the Buddha really said in these discourses and we can see the uh, social surroundings. So now Puddhapada thought of the Buddha when he heard all these explanations and knew that the Buddha was very skilled and now wants to ask him. And he's taking this opportunity when the Buddha won't visit him to ask him. In this matter, Puddhapada, those ascetics and Brahmins who say one's perceptions arise and cease without cause or condition are totally wrong. The Buddha did, did not have any qualms about saying that people taught the wrong doctrine. Not at all. When they were wrong, he said they were wrong. And when they were right, he said they were right. Why is that? Once perceptions arise and cease owing to a cause and conditions. Some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And what is this training? The Lord said. See now, the Buddha is not going to answer the original question just yet. The higher extinction or the extinction of the higher consciousness, one should say, not the higher extinction, it's extinction of higher consciousness. As well as this is translated, it still has its drawbacks. Um, he's not going to answer that just yet, because that, so to say, um, very much a result of excellent training. So he's going to start right at the beginning of training. And what is this training? Potapada, a Tathagata arises in this world, an Arahant, a Tathagata is another word for a Buddha, and it literally translated means one gone such. Gata is gone, Tata is such. One gone such. And it has, usually, it's not translated, because how can one say one gone such? I have found it translated the other day, and it's such a weird word that I think it's much better not to translate it. The word was exemplar. I mean, it's a word we have really no connection to, the exemplar. And uh, so it's better to say Tathagata, and it just means the Buddha. An Arahant, a fully enlightened one, a fully enlightened Buddha, endowed with wisdom and conduct, welfarer, knower of the worlds, incomparable trainer of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened and blessed. Now, these are traditional words describing the Buddha, and one can assume that they were inserted. There's a traditional description of the Buddha. One does not have to assume that the Buddha said them himself. They are the veneration aspect of the Buddha, and we chant that. He, having realized by his own super-knowledge proclaims this world with its devas, maras, and brahmas. Devas, in, in our language we just call them angels, are higher beings, 
but uh, we in in this uh, in the West think angels are forever angels. In Buddhist uh, ex- in the Buddhist explanation, devas can also fall down from their states and become human or less. They're not forever devas. They have to practice. And um, <clears throat> at the beginning of each meditation course. I always silently invite them to come and take part. And then they do. Only those, of course, that want to learn. It's not all of them that want to practice. Because in the Deva realm, not having a gross body like we do, there's very little dukkha. So they don't have enough reason to practice. But some, of course, are quite intelligent and then they do come and practice. Marash. Mara is what we call devil. And here it's in plural. But the real translation is the tempter. So we actually have both within us. We have devas within us and maras within us. We have the uh, temptations within us. And we also have the angel-like faculties within us. And Brahmas are the gods. And they're definitely in plural in the Buddha's explanation. There are four different realms of gods. There isn't one creator, but there is the realm of creation. So he's talking about um, the world with Devas, Maras, and Brahmas. It's princes, like kings and princes and people. He preaches the Dhamma, which is lovely in its beginning, lovely in its middle, and lovely in its ending, in the spirit and in the letter. That's a very important aspect, that we don't only know the letter. Here, with a book like that, we can easily know the letter. All we have to do is read it and try to remember it, and we know the letter. And... uh, scholars do and uh, not only scholars lots of people find this most interesting and read it and remember it but it's not enough it's got to have the spirit within it and the spirit only comes about when we practice then we know exactly what is meant and then we carry the Dhamma within us so it's got to be the spirit and the letter And only when that happens do we have the teaching. Otherwise, we have preaching. And it displays the Dhamma. The teaching of the Buddha is called the Dhamma. And it displays the fully perfected and purified holy life. Dhamma is what the Buddha taught. He didn't teach Buddhism. That's a later invention, the word. Like, like, like Jesus had no intention of teaching Christianity. All he wanted to do was reform Judaism. All the Buddha wanted to do was reform Brahmanism. Obviously, both didn't succeed and both started unwittingly a new religion, which their followers did, of course. It was a reform movement. 
just like it was with Jesus. Because these very old religions deteriorate enormously. They deteriorate because the spirit is missing and only the letter is kept. We find it today everywhere. It's easy to find. It's much more difficult to find the spirit. It's much easier to find the letter. And so then he starts out with saying that the training. And he starts with, a disciple goes forth and practices moralities. Now, <coughs> going forth usually means becoming monk or nun. But we can practice morality also as a layperson. It's not confined to monks and nuns. Monks and nuns are, so to say, obligated, more or less forced. And because of that, if they haven't got the spirit of the Dhamma within them, rebel, find it difficult. Difficult to adhere to that obligation and force. Because the spirit of the Dhamma is missing. They've only got the letter, the rules. When one is a lay person, one takes it on voluntarily, out of understanding why it is good to practice it. And then it may even be easier. Naturally, it's difficult for both sides, ordained and lay, and can be easy for both sides. is moral conduct. And you can see the Buddha has no intention of answering higher states of consciousness, none whatsoever. He says, first you do your moral conduct, and then we'll see about the next. And the whole sutta goes on and on about the whole training, the whole um, pathway, until he finally comes to that. So the first thing is the uh, practicing the moralities. And then what he does is he talks about the five precepts that we, are, that we had already day before yesterday. I explained them. And I'll just mention them briefly now. Not killing any living beings, although it's here it's called abandoning the taking of life. He doesn't take life either with a stick or sword. He's scrupulous and compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all beings. So you see at the same time that the first precept is being kept not to kill. There is the opposite being practiced, to really wish for the welfare of all beings, just as we discussed loving-kindness and compassion as the opposite of killing. I am keen for you to know that these are the words of the Buddha so that one doesn't get the mistaken view that 
I may have thought out these things. I have done nothing of the sort. I'm just a mouthpiece. These are all the words of the Buddha. So he trembles for the welfare of all beings. So he's accomplished in morality. Then he abandons the taking of what is not given. He lives purely. He accepts what is given. He awaits what is given without stealing. This is the way it's explained here. And then the third precept, though, is changed from to refrain from sexual misconduct is to change to celibacy. Celibacy is considered by I don't know whether I should say all or most. Well, to be careful, I'll say most. But actually, when I say the great teachers, one could say all. All the great teachers is one very important aspect of gaining a foothold in the higher way of realizing the spiritual path. It is considered to be the most important precept for monks and nuns. It's considered to be a very important step on the path if lay people can take three or six months where they go into retreat and are celibate in order to see the benefit. It helps one to be independent, but it also helps one to overcome the strongest sensual desire. As far as the precepts for monks and nuns are concerned, it's the one that stands at the apex. It's the one, if it's broken, it immediately throws you out of the Sangha, the community of monks and nuns. So, uh, stealing this too, of course, but that's easily understood. We put people who steal into jail, but not people who have uh, sexual relationships. They don't go to jail. So, this is one that we need to understand a little better. The others are obvious, but this one is um, on a different level. So, the uh, the, fifth, the third precept uh, changes into celibacy here for the training in morality, the training for the higher states of realization. And then there's a long paragraph, very long, about speech. So that's the next precept. Abandoning false speech. And the words used are trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver with words. Now, a deceiver with words is saying one thing and doing another. Hypocritical. We find that because 
words are not so difficult, but most people have an inner registrar that they can well listen to and they realize what is being said is the uttering of utter truth and comes from experience or whether what is being said are just the letter and not the spirit. They know that. Most people can know that and they can well listen to their inner feeling about that. Abandoning malicious speech, not repeating there what one has heard here to the detriment of anyone. Repeat what one has heard to the detriment of anyone. One is a reconciler, an encourager, rejoicing in peace. So here we have peace as arising out of loving peace delighting in peace one who speaks for peace he speaks what is blameless pleasing to the ear agreeable reaching the heart an important point because when the speech is intellectual it doesn't reach the heart it can reach the mind and we have thousands and thousands and thousands of books that reach the mind but not the heart they're just too intellectual we don't not being intellectual doesn't mean that one doesn't know anything not being intellectual doesn't mean that one hasn't learned anything it doesn't mean that one can't explain anything it just means that what one speaks or writes which today is uh, also very uh, much used that media comes from the inner experience and therefore from the heart and is always imbued with the trembling for the welfare of beings the compassion and for others and then one speaks to the heart it's pleasing and attractive to the multitude abandoning idle chatter he speaks at the right time what is correct and to the point of Dhamma and discipline. Speaking to the point, the Buddha said in another discourse that if one speaks about Dhamma, it has to be exact and it has to be well thought out, easy to understand, precise. So that's the same here, speaking to the point of Dhamma and discipline. Now, I didn't mention, I should have, but I didn't, that it's called the three baskets because it contains the suttas, the vinaya, and the abhidhamma. And vinaya are the rules and the discipline for monks and nuns. And the abhidhamma, abhihaya, haya dhamma, the philosophy put together in uh, almost statistics. Not possible that somebody could speak like that. Obviously, something that came about 
at the councils of Arahants when they were trying to memorize easier. But it is canonical. So we have three. Abhidhamma Vinaya and Sutta. And what we're learning and what I'm teaching is always Sutta. Vinaya is not interesting for lay people. And Abhidhamma is a study for itself. And one really has to be inclined that way. It doesn't have any of the stories. It doesn't have any of the personal contact. It's really more statistical. So he teaches correct and to the point of Dhamma and discipline. Abhidhamma is mentioned. The scholars are still undecided whether it's by the Buddha or not. He's a speaker whose words are to be treasured, seasonable, reasoned, well-defined and connected with the goal. Words that are connected to the goal. For that one has to know what one's goal is, eh? to connect the words to that. Well, the goal of the Buddha's teaching is Nibbāna. Sanskrit Nirvana, Pali Nibbāna. Which means, literally translated, not burning. The loss of passions. People who hear that for the first time are often inclined to say, I don't want to lose my passions. That's fine. Then one has to have a different goal. But if we speak about the kind of speech which is edifying, inspiring, which is to the point of Dhamma, we speak about talk which is directed towards the loss of all dukkha. Now most people will agree to that. They're quite happy to lose all dukkha. No problem. So then, the only next step this needs to be taken, how can I lose my dukkha? And there is a sort of like a break there between, I don't want to let go of my passions, but I would like to lose all my dukkha. And that step, one has to take for oneself by investigating oneself, by seeing how does one dukkha arise. The very few people will argue about losing their dukkha. Even that's possible, but it's not very probable. But to argue about losing one's passions, that's not so rare. So I would like to suggest to you that you look at that as a contemplation. How does my dukkha arise? When do I have dukkha? How do I get it? Where does it come from? Why do I get it? And every answer you get is a new question. Where does my dukkha come from? If your answer should, against all expectations, be, I haven't got any dukkha, look again. Some dukkha is quite major and some is minor. So that's a very important contemplation because it sort of covers the step between that which we all would like, obviously. Who wants dukkha? Nobody wants that. And 
what we really can do to get rid of it. Interestingly enough, the fifth precept is left out here. These are four. And instead is put in that he doesn't damage crops or seeds, which are put in to grow, which is very often totally misinterpreted because of social conditioning in some of the Buddhist countries that a monk cannot work in the garden. It's not supposed to damage crops, obviously. If you've planted some um, lettuces, well, hopefully you wouldn't go around cutting them up and damaging them. And if there are some seeds planted, well, it's not going to go around and damage those. So social conditioning has interpreted some of these things in a way which doesn't really make much sense. Not damaging crops or seeds is a quite natural thing to do out of compassion for the people who need that to eat. So the fifth precept is left out, and that one is put instead, the fifth precept about not taking alcohol or drugs. I'm going to venture a guess, a personal opinion. And I always say that when it is a personal opinion, because otherwise what I say is nothing but an explanation of what the Buddha taught. I think that because he is teaching here wanderers, ascetics, who are on the spiritual path and want to know about the highest aspect that they can reach. He's taking taking it for granted that alcohol and drugs are not part of their lives. So he's leaving that out. And then he adds some more precepts which are the precepts actually for a novice monk and sometimes lay people take them for a limited period of time. And when lay people take them for a limited period of time, it means they want to practice at that time more intensively. And these are refraining from eating food at the wrong time. Now again, social conditioning has misinterpreted that one in some places, not everywhere. What it actually means is that one doesn't go to the fridge anytime one wants to and pick something out or has some chocolate in one's pocket and eats that whenever one pleases but uses self-discipline in eating. And if one wants to use a lot of self-discipline, one can eat just one meal a day, which is often done in many monasteries. But it mostly concerns disciplined eating, not stuffing oneself and not eating whenever one thinks about it, having chocolate lying about, having the refrigerator full of things that one can have any old time. Disciplined eating can also be used 
for fasting at certain times. Um, can't do always do that, but at certain times, one can therefore learn self-discipline. Avoids watching dancing, singing, music, and shows. They are distracting, and they are also geared towards arousing sexual desire, and they are connected to greed or the desire for sensual gratification. So one is better off if one wants to practice very intensely that one doesn't go to ordinary shows like that, dancing, singing, musical shows. Abstains from using garlands, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments and adornments. Well, making oneself look prettier, hanging things about one. It's a, a common practice in our world, trying to adorn oneself. It's nothing but a support system for me. If one has a lot of money, one can adorn oneself with valuable things. That's a support system for being valuable. If I have valuable things, I must be valuable. That thought is not clearly thought out, but that's at the bottom of it. But it is also this kind of uh, idea of looking better, being concerned with one's looks concerned with the ownership of the body. And then avoids accepting gold and silver, which is also misinterpreted. It means not to go into business. Now, that's, these are rules for monks and nuns, and lay people can use them for limited periods of time when they want to practice intensely. Then they take the precepts, and have a sort of a monastic life on time, which is, uh, can be extremely helpful for one's practice. And then when that time is over, then of course they revert to the five precepts and also to the third one, which means not celibacy at that time, but um, abstaining from sexual misconduct. So it is um, an enlargement upon the five precepts which we talked about in detail and it is the uh, um, basis for an intent, more intensive practice. And one doesn't have to be monk or nun, one can take it on time. There are other things one shouldn't accept other than gold and silver. <laughs> and I'll read it out because it's something that we don't get anyway. Um, raw grain or raw flesh women or young girls, male or female slaves, sheep and goats, cocks and pigs, elephants and cattle, horses and mares, fields and plots. These were things that were given as dana in those days. Well, we don't get that as dana, so we don't have to worry about, you know, slaves or sheep and goats. Nobody's going to give us that. But um, what it means is that one doesn't... Um, have animals because they become one's slaves. 
He refrains from running errands, from buying and selling, from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding and killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking food by force. Now, mind you, one of the interesting aspects of that is that when the Buddha first started out ordaining Sangha, none of these precepts existed. He said, Ehi Bhikkhu, come monk, and you were a monk. And now, and even in the Buddha's time still, there are hundreds of precepts. Why? Because the monks and nuns he got, they very often did these things that he had to make precepts for. And then, of course, he had to make a rule. And now we have wound up with 227 precepts for monks and 311 precepts for fully ordained nuns. And some of those, of course, have no bearing on our time. They are totally socially conditioning. Um, but that's what happened in his time. The, um, the wounding, killing, highway robbery, taking food by force, cheating with false weights and measures, bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity. Even today, one can always find deception and insincerity. It's not hard to find. I doubt that one can find highway robbery. But one of the things that happened not so long ago was that a monk in Sri Lanka killed the prime minister. So anything can happen and does. It usually does. So all these precepts were all done much later, after the Sangha was already in existence and had been in existence for numbers of years. And then the Buddha found out about all these dreadful happenings and then made the rules. Now obviously one doesn't feel very much um, identified with things like that. I mean, I don't think anybody of us was thinking of highway robbery. But what it does tell us is that we can have a more intensive practice by letting go of things which we are used to. One of them being an, a sexual relationship, another one being ornamenting oneself, another one being um, eating at any time that one feels like it, and just having ordinary and good nourishing food. And one should say that in the hot countries, it's totally unnecessary to eat at night. One really doesn't feel like it. But in a cold country, and I must admit I find this a cold country, uh, it is a different story altogether. So, um, but one doesn't eat when one pleases. Not dancing, singing music and shows to watch them. One can abstain from these things for a period of time. And then one has the... Um, the ten precepts of a novice monk or a novice nun and is actually well prepared to uh, have a more intensive period. And then 
the Buddha says, and that for um, for one who is really intensively practicing, that can be his morality. We will find that we are going step by step in this sutta and we'll find also the answer to the question that was originally asked. That also comes about, but it's going to take about three or four pages till we get there. And this is the way the Buddha taught. He usually taught those things that concern our everyday life and then step by step successively the things that concern the meditation and then those that concern insight. We'll say our verse for the food. And please repeat after me. Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Not for pleasure. Not for indulgence. But only for maintaining this body. So that it endures. For keeping it unharmed. For supporting life, so that former feelings of hunger are destroyed, and new feelings from overeating do not arise, then there will be for me a lack of bodily obstacles, and living comfortably. <laughs> 